Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. June is our anniversary month. On the 16th of June, the Cavendish will be 149 years old. And for the occasion, we thought it would be a good idea to rerun one of our previous episodes with one of our longest standing members, Malcolm Longair. Malcolm is the memory of the department and his stories are fascinating. So let's just jump in with Simone and Jacob and our guest, Malcolm Longair, and we'll be back next month for a brand new episode. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Jacob Butler and I work in the outreach office here at the lab. And I'm Simone Zaire Barker, a PhD student here studying experimental physics. With us this month is Professor Malcolm Longair, CBE, FRS, FRSE and Munroist. Born in Dundee in 1941, Malcolm studied electronic physics at what is now the University of Dundee, but was then part of St Andrews. After this, he came down south to the Cavendish, where he completed his PhD as part of the Radio Astronomy Group, supervised by Martin Ryle. Specialising in high-energy astrophysics and astrophysical cosmology, Malcolm has since been a Royal Society Exchange Visitor to the USSR, held visiting professorships at prestigious institutions around the world, been the Astronomer Royal for Scotland, Cambridge's Jacksonian Professor of Natural Philosophy, Deputy Head and Head of the Cavendish Laboratory. He has contributed to international scientific bodies such as NASA and ESA, and found the time to publish 22 books, over 300 scientific papers and give hundreds of public lectures. Most recently, he has been Director of Development at the Cavendish Laboratory. In this role, he has helped modernise the Cavendish, with the building of the Physics of Medicine building and the Maxwell Centre and the soon-to-be-completed Ray Dolby Centre, which will house most of the upcoming National Facility for Physics. Today, we'll be talking about Malcolm's path into physics, what over half a century of working at the cutting edge of science has taught him, and where he sees the Cavendish Laboratory going in the future. Thank you very much for being with us here, Malcolm. I think uh, from the list of things that uh, I've got just gone through in our introduction there, we've got uh, quite a bit to talk about. Indeed, no, it's a great, very great pleasure to, to, talk, to talk to you. And you ask the questions and I'll give you as honest answers as I can. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Well, thank you very much. So you're something of an institution here at the Cavendish, but before we delve into your experiences here and your stories about your career in Cambridge, it'd be great to hear about how you got started in physics. So uh, as I mentioned, you grew up in Dundee in the 1940s, and went on to study chemistry and physics at the University of St Andrews. Uh, was there anything in particular about physics that drew you in, and what was the experience of university uh, like for you? Well, it, it's a slightly strange story. Um, originally, I was going to be a chemist, um, but then I found I was more and more drawn to, to physics. Uh, at that time, the university in Dundee was not terribly strong in physics, but it was very good in engineering and electrical engineering. And so I discovered a course which I could take, which combined both electrical engineering and attending all the physics lectures as well. So I essentially did two degrees <laughs> at, at, at one time. And in fact, I found the electrical engineering very, very stimulating, actually rather easy, I found it, for, <laughs> for the things I was doing. And, and so I did, did pretty well there. Whereas the physics I learned was didn't have the same intensity of apprehension that I had for others because I wasn't examined in the physics. Oh, yeah. uh, so um, then 
then I, I, I was offered a place in, in, in Cambridge to work in the Radio Astronomy Group, uh, which was uh, absolutely blew my mind because people from my background don't go to Cambridge. That's, that, that, <laughs> that, 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 that's just the story. So you're not from an academic family then? <laughs> no, there, 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 was, there was no one in my immediate uh, uh, prehistory that went here, except for um, essentially my role model, my uncle, oh, yeah. who went to Stendhal's and studied physics. <laughs> so uh, at the age of around about four or five, people asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I would say, I want to be an atomic physicist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and essentially, that's what's, that's what's happened uh, one way or another. But the important thing uh, about this move to Cambridge was clearly my academic record was good uh, but I discovered that I was really uh, very poorly prepared in physics and so um, I had to learn everything from scratch and that in the end was very beneficial because uh, my colleagues in Cambridge had come, most many of them had come through the tripods and they were extremely well prepared. You could put a problem in front of them, you know exactly what to do with it. <laughs> I said, oh my God, what the hell have I got to do with this? <laughs> but what this meant was I was not, I had to relearn my physics my own way and not either this, the Scottish way or the Cambridge way, my own way. And that has, I think, benefited a lot of my understanding of physics and so forth. So during your time here in Cambridge, during your PhD, what do you think were kind of the main takeaways that you got from that? What, what were the problems that you were working on with Martin Ryle and, and Peter Schuert? Well, um, the, uh, I, I arrived here extremely green uh, Scottish uh, graduate student and was immediately put on to try to find the galaxies associated mm -hmm. with radio sources. And in the, in, within my first year, I discovered the most distant quasar. Hmm. And you know, I hadn't realised how important it was at the time, <laughs> but uh, but but others did, and, and and so forth. And so I got into a very rich stream. The quasars were discovered in 1963, exactly the same day that I, that I arrived in Cambridge. <laughs> and again, I keep emphasising to people that 1960s were the revolutionary decade of astronomy because that's when everything changed. Radio. Infrared, millimeter, X-ray, gamma all, all the wavelengths. <laughs> all the wavelengths were suddenly opened up for astrophysics and cosmology, mm. and so we had a tremendous time. There would be new, surprising things happening every, literally, every day. Come anything in again in Cambridge, the pulsar discovery by Tony Hewish. So that was the background in which one was living. It's mm. very, very vibrant, uh, very exciting. Being driven by Martin Ryle, who really was a driven personality, and and you picked up this enthusiasm and the dynamism that well, well it was there in me I think to begin with but it was completely reinforced by this uh, wonderful environment. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the supervisors that you had and the environment around you was quite important to pushing you forward. Oh absolutely and people were, were very encouraging but also I was I was doing it slightly differently from the way that others were doing. It was basically an experimental radio astronomy group but I was put in to help with the theoretical interpretative side of all the of the observations. So I ended up being a mixture of, uh, of observer, interpreter, theorist uh, to help understand these new things that were happening. It was a fantastic education. Sounds but, like quite the change from a sort of very, what sounded like a very practical electronics focused uh, undergraduate course that you did in Dundee. So. It, it, 
I didn't notice the difference. <laughs> I, 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 I just did what what I wanted. What <laughs> but I think the, it, it was interesting that my program was very independent. Hmm. You know, I was basically allowed to do what was good and and you know inspired by peter shaw and martin ryle we were able to do some very clever things and then um i was learning my physics at this stage and then i went to moscow from 1968 to 1969 and that was a really completely changed my attitude to how you understand science mm. because um i i i love Russian culture and love your music, all like these sorts of things. And I wanted to experience it firsthand. And so I also knew that this, the Soviet scientists were doing extremely innovative work, which I wanted to understand in much more detail. Mm. And so I had a year working with these people by great good fortune. I was working with the very best people in these areas in the Soviet Union. So I was working with Ginsburg, uh, with Zeldovich, and then my, my close colleague, uh, Rashid Semyayev, who's a, a great star. But these were my everyday contacts. And I mean, this was pretty much at the height of the Cold War, wasn't it? So I imagine it must have been very difficult to build these sort of relationships, especially with something as, as sort of cutting edge as, uh, as radio astronomy and these yes. close relations to... Uh, to well, as I, as I emphasise to people, you know, luck plays a, a large part in, in, in your success and you've got to know how to handle your luck. So getting to Cambridge to work with Martin Ra, being able to do innovative science within the first year of my research. When I went to the Soviet Union, the... The, 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 my colleagues knew all about my work <laughs> and because there was no equivalent facilities or capability in the Soviet Union and it was also with cosmology. Zeldovich had been leading the nuclear physics program for designing atomic weapons but then it changed had completely left that program in 1960 and was now devoting all his efforts to high energy astrophysics and cosmology. And so that's why they wanted to know what I was up to, because the stuff we were doing was right at the cutting edge of radio astronomy and cosmology. So that was another huge bit of luck. But then they opened up for me huge ranges of new types of science. So I was writing papers with Rashid on X-ray background, gamma ray background, also infrared observations, all this sort of thing. And we wrote a paper, which again, Rashid did a, did a awful lot of work on it, on the extragalactic background radiation, where we surveyed the whole of all the wave bands and <laughs> all the cosmology that was going on in one paper. <laughs> so that's just, again, and that's the luck. Focus then. That's just yeah. luck that you actually, the, the circumstance just made that happen. Mm -hmm. So that was a tremendous kickoff. So by the time I came back, and then I was made a, a demonstrator, what's now called an assistant professor here, mm -hmm. in the laboratory, and had to start learning my physics again from scratch, <laughs> because again now I had to present it, and mm -hmm. that was a, that, that was hard work, but very profitable was I had to relearn everything in my own way, mm -hmm. and that's why the books that I've written look different from the way that people normally present physics, quite intentionally. Because I was wanting to try to get to the absolute fundamentals, what's the really important things, rather than just simply repeating what you had been taught before. So mm -hmm. that's that, that's how, that's how my understanding gradually came about, and it continues to develop. <laughs> you know, even at my great age, it is it is still uh, there's always more it's, to learn. It's terribly exciting, and you learn new things that. If only I'd known that 50 <laughs> years ago, what would I do? But that's not how it works. But it, mm -hmm. you never cease learning. That's the lovely thing about physics. 
So over the next decade, once you came back from the USSR, you got involved in various government science committees. You were a professor at the University of Edinburgh. You became Astronomer Royal for Scotland, the director of the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. What was it like to move from more of a research-focused role to one where you had to manage the kind of the big picture in government institutions and liaise with non-scientific, uh, non-scientist stakeholders and to manage all these high-scale projects? What was that change like? Um, well, uh, the, uh, the answer, answer is interesting. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it turned out that the SRC, which became SERC and then SCFC and so forth, so the science um, they, they, they liked the way I had handled committees in mm-hmm. being able to square circles, uh, which always happened in these sorts of, sorts of environments. And in particular, uh, I helped to resolve how to get the funding problems for pro- simultaneously for projects in optical astronomy, X-ray astronomy, and the infrared astronomy. So they liked that, and in fact, uh, the they approached me very early, saying we would like you to be our next ast- astronomer royal for Scotland. Right. Uh, and so I, I have only ever had one interview, job interview in my life, for <laughs> and, was that one? <laughs> and that was uh, this one. And I and, and I was told there is only one candidate, <laughs> and, it and was, it's you. <laughs> and that was me. <laughs> that's, that's quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and again, the, the the selection panels didn't quite know what to ask me. But anyway, we we had a nice half hour. And that, and that was it. But why, why, did, why would, did I want to do that? Yeah. Uh, part of the reason was that the things that were doing happening in Edinburgh tuned in very well with the things I was interested in pursuing in the future. So, for example, I'd, be, I'd been persuaded that we needed large telescopes in the optical. I'd been persuaded that we needed to get into infrared and millimetre astronomy at the cutting edge at the beginning. Mm. And the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh was in the ideal place to do it. Unlike the Royal Greenwich Observatory in Edinburgh, the emphasis was upon instrumentation, innovative detectors, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that, if you think about it, was you know what's driven the whole astronomy. Yeah. The other thing which helped was that I was made an interdisciplinary scientist for the Hubble Space Telescope in 1977. Wow. Right? <laughs> I was the only you know a non. Uh, non-American mm-hmm. member of the team who was there just on the basis of of, of astronomical record. Right. And so that gave me another huge set of insights mm-hmm. into where the cutting edge was. So I, I was in a, in a good position to actually do that. What then happened was I had to learn how to operate under strict civil service rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, you may say, oh, what a pain. Uh, but... In fact, it was crucial for my future career because I had to work under civil service rules and that meant any problems that came up on the administrative management front, there were formal ways of dealing with them. And Mm -hmm. I learned how to deal with this. So when I came back to Cambridge, running the Cambridge was peanuts compared to running (laughs) a national facility for 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 the for the community, so it's um, although people may say it must be a great pain to do that, uh, yes. But I learned so much about mm-hmm. how to get big projects uh, operating and working, and that's that's been uh, that was a tremendous bonus of that that period. Yeah, I think I mean, 
when we look at sort of large scale projects, the people that are funding them very rarely are actually scientists, are they? It's, uh, there is that communication with those outside the scientific community. And I was wondering if you had any particular advice or guidance you'd suggest to any scientists looking to uh, work in a more sort of policy focused area or to work on these sort of uh, slightly different levels in terms of uh, scientific projects? Um, there are certain rules uh, <laughs> which, which I developed. Uh, by far the most important thing about management is people, people, people. <laughs> Everything else is second order. Mm -hmm. So that if the whole team is happy and believe that you're working on their behalf and care about them, that makes, makes it easy to do difficult things. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that. So that, 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 that's the number one. Uh, the, the second is um, always appreciate the managers and administrators. Right? When I say I've met administrators of genius, people say that is a contradiction in terms. Right? And that's not true. <laughs> uh, the, and I was very fortunate in Edinburgh and in the SARC, they were very supportive of everything we were trying to do because they knew that we were being straightforward, we weren't playing games, we really believed very deeply in what we were doing. And so, you know, that was how the, 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 the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh survived. We were doing the right things that the community wanted. And so these are the sort if you're going to do this sort of management job, these are the these are the basic rules. I've never been on a management course in my life. <laughs> you know, right? I'm just doing it by instinct. Mm -hmm. And I say there's people that are really important, just in this place as well. It's the people that are really important, not the facilities. Yeah. And so kind of looking at the opposite of that, for scientists who maybe don't really know much about the infrastructures that provide the funding for us to be able to do our science, what do you think are important things for us to think about as scientists when we think about the fact that you know most of science, most of research is funded by, you know, taxpayer funds um, what do you think is important what have you learned from your time looking at from that infrastructure side that would be important for scientists uh, well I, I think I would say that uh, you know people say it's a pity we've got to deal with this peer review system and everything else <laughs> but nobody's come up with anything better <laughs> than that and being judged by one's or one's peers for what you're proposing is very good and and really the projects that you put forward have got to be absolutely, totally cutting edge and, and persuade people, this is what we as a community ought to be doing. It's, it's that bringing along the things which are innovative, imaginative, and, and everybody agrees that they're imaginative and innovative is where you want to get. So it's in the writing of the proposal, how you present it is very important. That's why it's terribly important to write good language. <laughs> and it's one of the things which I was lucky when I was at school I was doing French, English, Latin, history, Greek up to the age of 18 mm. and what that meant was that you, had, you, you naturally were you were brought up to write mm -hmm. good English and it helps enormously if you look at research proposals the ones which which you read through and say, well, that was a joy to read. Mm -hmm. right? So good storytelling is important. Good storytelling, <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. It, it, it's good storytelling. It, it is very, very important. And avoid jargon as much as possible. Mm -hmm. If you're really clever, you don't need jargon. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the, you can explain it in simple words that everyone will say, golly, these guys are bright. <laughs> that's what you wanted. Yeah. <clears throat> It's very interesting as well. We had one of our previous interviewees, uh, Joanna Petrowska. Uh, she spoke to about how her sort of background in art had helped influence her sort of graph writing and uh, graph story drawing, I suppose. 
and this sort of artistic language as a way of communicating things through the sort of visual medium. It's interesting mm-hmm. here that you've had a similar thing with language and the uh, sort of the you know, the words as opposed to the pictures that you use to communicate. I guess science. anything that helps you express your ideas in, in a more clear concise way it's probably useful well you know i i, I i'm terribly old-fashioned you know, as you will gather <laughs> uh, so that for example you know i i love reading dickens walter scott people like that and it's seeing the use of language by by, by great writers mm-hmm. and, and seeing how it the, the the proper writing adds so much to the it is now of course we're in the 21st century. <laughs> Not too many people read Dickens. And... I guess you don't want your grand proposal to sound like it was from 18... <laughs> but yeah. still important to I remember one of my colleagues, uh, Richard Saunders over the road, uh, when, he, when he was asked by the students, how, how, what should I read to, to be able to write better? And he said, read Jane Austen. <laughs> and it's true. Mm. You know, being able to be absolutely concise in the use yeah. of language helps, helps tremendously. So that's one of the jobs which I do actually for mm-hmm. the big projects. I do an awful lot of rewriting mm-hmm. uh, of, of, of proposal just so that they run run more easily. So I guess the advice is don't just read papers, also read books. <laughs> <laughs> we now take a break from the interview to look at some of the latest research news coming from the Cavendish. This month, we focus on how artificial intelligence is helping to speed up the discovery of new materials. Atoms are the basic building blocks of every material. Combining different types of atoms naturally leads to different materials. However, it is not just the types of atoms that determine material properties, but also their arrangement. Let's take carbon as a simple example. If we pack the atoms in hexagonal stacks, we obtain graphite, pencil lead, but if we arrange them in a face-centered cubic structure, we obtain diamond. There are many ways that atoms can pack into a material. Some packings are stable and others are not. Determining the stability of a packing is a computationally intensive task, and calculating every possible arrangement of atoms to find the best one is not practical. This leads to a significant bottleneck in material science. Now, Dr. Rhys Goodall and Dr. Alpha Lee from the Cavendish, in collaboration with researchers from Linköping University in Sweden, have published a study in the journal Science Advances in which they propose a new computational way to predict the structure of materials given its constitutive elements without having to fabricate them in the lab. Their method is based on machine learning, a computational technique in artificial intelligence in which an algorithm is trained to recognize patterns in sample data to make predictions on new data without being explicitly programmed to do so. Such algorithms are already widely employed in facial recognition systems or self-driving cars, for instance. The authors first developed a new way to describe materials, using the mathematics of symmetry to reduce the infinite ways that atoms can pack into materials into a finite set of possibilities. They then used machine learning to predict the ideal packing of atoms, given the elements and their relative composition in the material. With this new approach, the authors were able to discover new materials with five times the efficiency of the current standard, removing a key roadblock in developing advanced materials for applications such as energy storage and photovoltaics. 
Their method can also find thousands of new and stable materials that have never been made before in a way that is computationally efficient. This material structure prediction challenge is similar to the protein folding problem in biology, said Dr. Alfeli. There are many possible structures that a material can fold into, except the material science problem is perhaps even more challenging than biology because it considers a much broader set of elements. The number of materials that can be generated with this technique is four to five orders of magnitude larger than the total number of materials that we have made since antiquity. The researchers are now using their machine learning platform to find new functional materials such as dielectric materials. They're also integrating other aspects of experimental constraints into their approach to screen for functional properties. If you want to find out more, you can find links to the study mentioned here in the show notes. So you're back with us here with uh, Professor Malcolm Longer, where we've been talking about his uh, how he got into science and the sorts of things he's been up to for the last 50 years. Uh, we were just talking about uh, the sort of work you did at a management level, you know, where you uh, ended up talking to the civil service and communicating with all sorts of uh, interesting non-scientific people. But uh, eventually you moved back to the Cavendish as professor, where you served as the head of the department here for eight years, where you began the programme to rebuild the Cavendish laboratory. Could you tell us a bit about the process behind a project of this sort of scale? It's, it's uh, quite a, quite a sizable investment to uh, build a new laboratory. Yes, it, it was very ambitious. The, I was, I was um, the head of the head of the Cavendish from 1997 to 2005. And um, the laboratory was continuing to grow uh, all, 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 all the time. Now, the, the, the thing which struck me was that the Cavendish, as it was, as it is still just now, was built by Brian Pippard, and his philosophy was to get the maximum amount of space for the given amount of money. <laughs> and and that was a, a wise decision at the time, mm. because uh, in the centre of Cambridge, it was absolutely total chaos. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, chaos is a very polite word to, <laughs> uh, to, 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 to you, you, you use for this. And so moving out here, suddenly we had enough space to actually get everything organised. But the, the build was... Um, using the clasp technique, which was um, really a rather cheap solution and involved things like lots and lots of use of asbestos uh, as, as the insulator, flat roofs uh, and things like that. And I was finding that you know the, the costs of operations were absolutely enormous. Electricity bills, the fact that the, the roofs leaked, the fact that any time you wanted to rebuild a laboratory, you had to have a, a large expense to get rid of the asbestos in the walls. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really beginning to look its age. It was not meant to last terribly long. And here we are still in that. And here we are still here. I mean, it come in in 1974. Mm -hmm. So uh, I decided that the only long-term solution to, to, to doing this was to rebuild the whole laboratory. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I put a proposal to, well, in, in, in 2002, we'd had a number of discussions, uh, which, which basically said, look, the only long-term solution for the cabinet is to rebuild the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the centre was, uh, was uh, agreeable, this is a good thing. So they said, yes, man, that's a very good idea. You can run drop in the plans and raise the money. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the beginning of, of that story. 
And so uh, we came up with imaginative plans how we could rebuild on the existing site and so forth. Um, and, and what needed to be done. We were talking about substantial amounts of monies at that time. And it was, again, again of the order of £100 million to do mm -hmm. it at that stage. Mm -hmm. um, and the vision that I had then was there was no way we were going to do that all in one go. We'd have to do it bit by bit. Mm -hmm. So that's how we started this process of gradually rehousing bits of the activity, bringing new activities that I wanted to get in. I mm -hmm. wanted to get uh, biological physics, I wanted to get medical physics and things like that into the laboratories program. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure all of the facilities were upgraded mm -hmm. so we could attract the best people yeah. and so forth. So that's how the sequence of buildings started to grow. We started with the physics of medicine building, mm -hmm. which was was very good, uh, an entirely new area. Uh, then the, the next thing that happened was the Cavley Institute was formed for to put to bring together all the astrophysicists and again we were part of that. Uh, the next thing that happened uh, was that I then wanted to, to to again move the astrophysics physicists in the in the in this building here over onto the same site as the um, as the Institute of Astronomy because mm -hmm. it was silly to have the, the <laughs> people running around with the bikes. <laughs> so we, we were able to get again Humphrey Backcock very generously gave us the money which was matched by the university. And then uh, we one of the most important things that happened was that we started formally trying to raise money with with QDAR uh, and we had a breakfast at which Humphrey uh, at, at which Humphrey wasn't there but uh, but uh, David Harding was there mm. and um, we were allowed to make presentations to them now I was told have some extra projects in your back pocket <laughs> right just in case it doesn't appeal to the people at this at this breakfast meeting uh, and so um uh, at the end of the presentation, which Richard Friend talked about his work, I talked about the overall vision for the new science that we wanted to do. Um, they said, are there any other things that you were interested in? said, well, well, one thing which I'd love to do is the physics of sustainability. That, to me, is going to be the way to the future, all the new technologies that we need. And David Harding uh, said to me, oh, I've never heard of the physics of sustainability. And that was absolutely true because I'd only invented it the night before. <laughs> anyway, it rang a bell with him and he gave us £20 million pounds wow. to, to, to actually do the physics of sustainability. And we just celebrate the 10th anniversary of all that activity, just, uh, just those week. Now, uh, then the final thing was that we managed to get um, the... Uh, because of the amount of money we'd raised, we were able to use a government scheme to build the Maxwell Centre. So what it meant was that we'd, we'd, raised, uh, we'd actually managed to invest £80 million already in these four new buildings. And at that stage, uh, the university said, and the vice chancellor said, right, let's do the whole thing. Right, let's, let's <laughs> As you've proven that you, you could manage it, you could get well, it done, the buildings well, existed. We were, it showed that we were really serious about what means mm -hmm. to get get the money money yeah. to, to, to do do this, and we even knew at that stage that there would be a future gift from the Dolby Foundation. Mm -hmm. So we used that to again again get tranches, very substantial tranches, and uh, got three quarters of the money for what was now a three hundred million pound building, uh, because of everything we wanted to to, to move, mm -hmm. and uh, you know that's how. To, so the the answer is you've just got to. to 
you've got to do two things. One is to keep trying to find the people who can help, and then to use then to use that to leverage the other sums of money that you need right. to and you need to actually get 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 the sum to. But we were lucky. You know, mm -hmm. let's not let's not uh, beat about the booth. We were blooming lucky uh, <laughs> to, to to be able to, able to do that. But the building that you're going up. Yeah, I'm just like, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be really nice to move. Yeah. Um, actually, I was going to say that it sounds like from what you're saying that your career, in, in the, the fact that you had such a track record in, in large-scale projects that you'd seen, you know, if we want to do infrared astronomy, we need, you know, these telescopes, yes. we need these detectors. It sounds like you had the same vision for the Cavendish in the sense that if we want to keep, you know, working at this level or doing this kind of research, we're going to need you know, a certain facility, Absolutely a certain instrumentation. That's right. You, you, you know, lots of people, uh, uh, well, some of the, of the older members say, oh, this is a wonderful building, the, the building we're in. And I say, look, this is going to fall down. Mm -hmm. you, you cannot hope to attract the best people mm -hmm. unless you've got the best accommodation, the best facilities mm -hmm. of everything, and not just looking at what you're doing now. You've got <laughs> what a, you, vision, where you gonna be? Yeah. a vision for the future. Mm -hmm. And you know, what's interesting is to see how things changed in the directions of the science. The, the, I can't emphasize just how important the Winton program that was funded by David Harding was, mm -hmm. because that has produced all sorts of new, not only science, but collaborations. Yes. So that the, the divisions between chemistry, physics, mm -hmm. material science, uh, geology, all of these things, they're, they're beginning to vanish. Yeah. And it's a good thing. now. I, we can't put them all together, but what we want to do is to get the symbiosis between the bits where it makes natural sense for people to collaborate. That's where the new science will come from. Mm -hmm. And we'll do it in a new building as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had an amazing career. What would your further key takeaways that you'd like to share with our listeners, many of whom might be uh, early on in their career or generally interested in science and physics? Is there any sort of uh, messages you'd like to share for them? Being someone who's worked at all these different levels and seen it from all sorts of perspectives. Yes, well, the, 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 the by far the most important thing is you've really got to want to do this. <laughs> right? This is not a job. Mm. Uh, this is something which, again, it's got to involve your whole body and soul and everything else. And it's got to be in your mind all the time. Now, people say, look, that's a terribly boring thing. But the way I, I operate is that I keep lots and lots of ideas, projects in my mind simultaneously. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing how they just keep linking up in different ways, giving you new insight, new ways of actually being able to do things. So you've, you've got to be at it all the time. Now, I'm not meaning to the exclusion of everything else. You know, <laughs> I don't want to lose all my interest in music uh, and things like that. That's absolutely sacred to me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you're lying in bed at night, I think I think about physics. Mm. You know, I think so. That that's one. The thing is, uh, the second thing is you've got to work bloody hard. Right? There's no way you can get away with this without really putting in an absolutely huge effort. Because I used to claim that physics was easy. I no longer do that. I think it's much, much more subtle than that. Mm. That, uh, in fact, I think we underestimate how long it takes to really understand. It takes a long what, time <laughs> to understand it, something it's properly. A lifetime, it's a lifetime. Uh, so, you know, I've written a book called Theoretical Concept and Physics, and I've just produced a couple of years ago the third edition, mm. and you can you can see the evolution of my appreciation of physics evolving mm. through the three three editions. It, it, it changes. And the things which are important. So that's very important. 
you've got to have luck. Mm. And part of that is making sure you uh, get into a, an area which is going to develop. Right? Mm -hmm. So you've got to choose a good supervisor, right? <laughs> supervisor, absolutely a good one makes the whole difference to your career as compared with someone who says just go and get on with it. Some students can get on, and I've had a number of these, they're, they're unsupervisable just because <laughs> they're just so off scale. You, you know, you just mention something to them and off they go mm -hmm. and come back with the answer in a couple of weeks. You know? <laughs> and, but most students will need the training, the guidance, the help, the support, and the transmitted enthusiasm <laughs> for, 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 for what they should be doing. And then if you have the luck to get all of that right, you've got to build on it. Mm -hmm. In other words, you mustn't remain static. You, the, the luck will lead you to the next things that you should, you should, should be thinking of. And also don't, don't hesitate to take risks, mm -hmm. right? to doing things that might not work out. There, there, there's, there's nothing wrong with failure so long as you... It's good failure. <laughs> you understand that you, it's happened for good, good reasons. So and, and enjoy it. That's the most most important thing. You know, it's everybody's different in, in how it is. But but actually, having fun while doing all this, there are going to be grim bits of this story. <laughs> and I haven't told you anything about the, the real difficulties in each of these phases. Mm -hmm. You know, having to having make difficult decisions and so forth. But so long as they're all done with the best of faith. In, 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 in order to support everyone, you'll get through. Well, thank you so much, Malcolm, for a wonderful chat and to our producer, Chris, for this episode. The news today was brought to you by Paolo. And if you want to learn more about what's been going on in the Cavendish, uh, what we discussed in this episode, or want to join or study with us here, please go to phy.cam.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Uh, thank you for listening in to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. We'd love to put your questions to our team of physicists. Send us your most pressing ones on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag PeopleDoingPhysics. You can also email us at podcast at phy.cam.ac.uk. We'll be back next month. So uh, thanks again to Malcolm and uh, we'll see you then. Bye.